0: Welcome to Chapel of the Lake in Lake St. Louis, Missouri. The Chapel family is a multi-generational community of believers who gather weekly to worship and explore God's Word as we grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Join us now as Pastor Keith Spa opens the Scriptures. Well, good morning, Chapel family. Well, I encourage you to take your Bibles this morning for our last little foray uh, through the book of James we're in the book of james chapter 5 wrapping up our study here and some of you are breathing a sigh of relief <laughs> finally we're done others of us we've we've enjoyed it but it's been a it's been a challenging trip hasn't it it's about 17 years ago speaking of going places i took one of my first trips over to the Philippines to meet with our missionary partners there, John and, uh, and Moody. While I was there, I had the blessing also of meeting this couple, people who are working among the Tagus people, by the way, the same people that Moody and uh, Faye and also uh, Shang and Wang are working with today. But they were working with the Tagus and... Um, because of their witness for Jesus, on three different occasions, some uh, guerrillas not the animal kind, but the paramilitary rebel type, came to their home intending to kill them and burn down their, their little, we'd call it a hut, with them and their eight children inside. On all three occasions, the only thing they could do was sit inside and pray. And so they did. Each time, God miraculously protected them. The first time they were there, these gorillas doused their hut with gasoline, and then they went to light it, and nobody could get a lighter to work. (laughs) The next time they came, they doused the house with gasoline again, This time their lighters worked, but the gasoline wouldn't catch fire. Another time they came and they decided first they would shoot everybody through the house, shoot it up and then burn it, and their guns wouldn't fire. A couple of them had hand grenades and they couldn't get the pins out of the hand grenades. After that, the guerrillas quit coming and they left them alone. You know, we often say we believe in the power of prayer, but do we really? Is our first instinct, our first and instinctive action, is it prayer? Or is it the last thing we do when everything else we think of and tried has failed? See, I know that our missionary partners in the southern Philippines... Believe in prayer as much as these folks do. As an essential and powerful necessity, not as a nice option. When they ask for us to pray for them, they count on the fact that we really are praying for them. In this passage before us this morning, James chapter 5, and from verse 13 to the end, he calls us to prayer. And when we're done this morning, there's really just two things, I, two essential things I want to leave us with. The first is that prayer is essential for every believer. And The second is that prayer is effective and powerful. We remember that James has addressed this little letter to believers who have been persecuted and now are scattered abroad into other lands, living as aliens, as refugees in these other lands. And in his opening, he instructs them, as well as us, to face our trials, our troubles, our difficulties with prayer As he says, if any of you lacks wisdom to know what to do in your troubles and trials and difficulties, he says, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Now James ends his letter, having begun that way, he ends the letter bringing us back to where he began. He he began talking, as we saw last week in the Earlier verses, just before this, he began talking about living amid amid trials and difficult times and persecution. And now he speaks encouragement to these believers who are suffering and being persecuted. And once again, he calls them to respond in prayer. Prayer is essential for every believer. Look at verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. James calls for every one of us as individuals. He says, is any one? Is any one of you? Prayer is essential for every one of us as individuals. And he's saying we should always pray whatever our situation is. We should pray in our suffering. He says, is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Pray in our suffering. And indeed, many of these folks who are reading this letter are suffering. So are a lot of folks reading this letter today. Some of us here in this place millions of our brothers and sisters around the world. And he says, when something hurts us, pray. You know, the reality is sometimes when things hurt us, when someone is oppressing us, when things aren't going well, we often pour out words of anger. We pour out words of hurt. We pour out words of fear and we And and words of frustration. And we share those with our family. We share those with our friends. We share them with anyone who will listen. We even sometimes share words like that with our enemies. Usually angrily. But James says to pour out our hearts in words of prayer to God. To look to Him for the comfort in our pain. To trust Him for strength. To trust Him for deliverance. Years ago, we had a, a man here preaching who um, heads up a, a marvelous ministry. His name is Daniel Henderson. And he, that morning, he said something that I've never forgotten. He said, Prayerlessness is our declaration of independence from God. When we don't pray, what we are essentially saying is, God, I don't need you, I got this. But I fear that if you are like me, we are all too often prayerless when we should be full of prayer. If we reverse that statement, when we are prayerful, it expresses our trust and our reliance and our dependence upon God. Are you suffering today? Are you struggling today? pray. Pray in our suffering, but also, he says, pray in our joy. He says, is anyone cheerful? And when you look at the word cheerful, it's talking about attitude rather than circumstances. Notice, he doesn't just say, is anyone Experiencing lots of good times? Is anyone having lots of fun? Is everything going swimmingly well? He says instead, is anyone cheerful? Back in chapter 1, you may recall, he calls for us when he talks about troubles there. He says, brothers, count it all joy when you come into trials of Various and many kinds. Count it joy. So if things are going well, or if we are in tough times, difficult times, times of suffering, and yet in the midst of those, God has given to us peace and joy in our trials. We are now, he says, to be praising God. Sadly, how quick we are to forget to give praise to God. So I appreciate just coming off the Thanksgiving season a reminder that we are to be people with thankful hearts, with hearts of gratitude, hearts overflowing with praise to God. How we forget. I heard about a man who was on his knees one day desperately praying. He prayed, Lord, They're about to foreclose on our house. And I'm about to lose my job. And my wife may have cancer. You know, I haven't been much of a Christian, but I promise, if you'll help me, I'll quit my sinning. I'll be faithful in attending church. I will start tithing 10, no, I'll start tithing 11% of my income. I'll serve as an usher, and I'll even volunteer in the nursery. The man, as soon as he said amen, there was a, the phone rang, and he went and picked it up. It was his boss informing him that he was just being given a promotion at a large increase in salary and a multi-year contract guaranteed. Wow. Wow. Just then, his wife burst in the door and said, you'll never believe it. The doctor just said that that cancer they said I had, it's nowhere to be seen. It's gone. And then the doorbell rang, and he went and answered the doorbell, and there was Ed McMahon and the the prize patrol (laughs) handing him a check for a million dollars. When they drove away, he ran upstairs and he said, oh, Lord, never mind. It's all taken care of. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> how quick we are. We laugh, but how too, too often we fail to give God the credit and the praise that he deserves for our answers to prayer and his faithfulness to us. Notice that it says there that we, it doesn't just say, is anyone cheerful, let him pray. It says, is anyone cheerful? It actually says, let him sing praise. Pray in song. You know, Christianity has sometimes been called a singing faith. Because when you look through the history of the church, from the very beginning, they were singing people. In their worship, what little we see of it in Scripture because you don't have a, a lot of detail about here's what a worship service should look like and here's everything they did in worship service. But what we find is basically every time that they gather together, they sing. I think one of the great tragedies of our time and of our culture is that singing is really less of a common pastime in general in our culture. With the advent of recording devices, streaming services, people in our culture for the most part leave singing to the professionals. (laughs) They sound so much better than us. And sadly that has bled over often into the church. But it ought not be so. The scripture calls us to be folks who sing. It's significant. A sizable portion of the scripture is song. Not only the Book of Psalms, but woven all through the scripture, there are songs. Let's let's be those who sing. I notice that here in the text, it's not a it's not just a gentle suggestion. Hey man, it's a nice idea when you praise God to. Sing a song every now and then. It's a command. Let him sing praise. Do it. I believe that when we fail to sing, we miss out on some of the joy and some of the blessing that God gives through song. It's not about performance. It's not about quality. It's about a deep and a very personal And an outward expression of this deep and personal inner joy. And sometimes, inner sadness that becomes joy. If you read the Psalms, he starts singing when he isn't feeling joyful. He starts singing when he is depressed and hurting and lonely and sad. And as he sings, his heart begins to change. We are to be people of song. Worshiping in song individually and worshiping in song corporately. Colossians chapter three says that when we gather together, we minister to one another, it says we teach and admonish one another through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. See, when we gather here on Sunday morning and we sing together, we are not only singing to God, but we are singing to one another. So that as you sing, You encourage me. As you sing, you teach me. And as I sing, I teach and encourage you. So when we sing, I love the way Martin Luther said it, that great reformer of the faith. He he said uh, in his notes, instructions on worship and how to sing. And he says, when you come, sing lustily. Not the word we would choose to use today, but in his day it just simply meant sing with passion, sing with enthusiasm. Even if you don't sing good, the scripture says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, sing loud. <laughs> it's music to the Lord's ears. Well, it, this calls us to individual prayer, but notice, move on to verse 14. It says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. I see. Not only is he calling us to individual prayer, but he's calling here for praying elders. Now these verses stir up a fair amount of controversy, a fair amount of questions that we don't have time to get into today. So I'm not going to attempt to even try to answer all the questions or go down all the little nuances of this. But the main focus of this passage is clear, and I don't want us to miss that, and that's what I'm going to focus on. The main focus is this. Church elders have a role to play, an important role to play in praying for their flock, in praying for the church, and especially for those who are severely ill, and particularly here in this text, if there is concern that sin might have a role in a person's illness. Now the Bible is very clear that all illness is not the result of sin. All suffering is not the result of sin. In our home group, we're going through the book of Job, and that's the problem of Job's friends. And they're thinking, if you're suffering, if you're sick, if there's problems, it's, it's because there's sin in your life. And they're wrong, and God lets them know at the end of the book, you're wrong. There's stuff going on behind the scenes that none of them understand. We suffer and there is sickness and there is difficulty and struggle in this world because we are in a fallen, broken world. There is are sinners in this world and there are sinners in this world. And godly people suffer and godly people struggle. And so sin may not be a cause of trouble in your life or suffering in your life, but the Bible is also clear that there are times that illness is a result of sin. Sin can lead to sickness. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that, that passage we often go to when we're talking about communion. And Paul warns the Corinthians, he says, don't come and eat of this meal, partake of this communion in an unworthy manner. He says, for this reason, some of you are sick and some of you have fallen asleep. Literally, some of you have died. John, in, his, in, in 1 John, writes, there is a sin that leads to death. There's a time when, when we sin and sin and sin and God says, that's it. You know, like the coach, you know, pulls you out of the game. God says, that's it. Really? Yeah, that's in the Scripture. And so we do well when there is something going on, when there is sickness and illness or trouble in our life. We do well to go to the Lord and say, is there something here that I'm missing? Or maybe we're very aware aware of our sin. We've been running from the Lord. He uses that sometimes to get our attention, call us back. And so this person here is very ill, they're very hurt. That's obvious because they call for the elders rather than go to the elders. And then it says the elders pray over him and they anoint him with oil. Some view this oil as a medicinal treatment, that the oil is applied to try to heal. That was one of the the things that was often used for healing of wounds and... and, uh, Different maladies. And that could be. That's a legitimate way to look at it. Others view the oil as having some kind of spiritual power. I don't think so. I think, I believe that this anointing of oil is done as a symbol, it's symbolic. It's to picture the, uh, The blessing and the power of God. The power of the Spirit of God coming upon a person. A reminder that any healing that comes is a result of the Spirit of God. And it says here that God works through their prayer. That the sins that are confessed by this individual are forgiven. There is physical healing. The Bible doesn't guarantee that God always heals. Otherwise, if he did, some folks would never die. That's the simplest explanation. There's lots of other places we can go, but we don't need to this morning. The Bible doesn't guarantee that God always heals, but God does heal. And he does sometimes heal quite miraculously. We have seen over the years a number of folks who have been healed from something that shouldn't have been healed from as a result of prayers. This isn't so-called faith healers. This isn't, you know, some spectacular healing. It's not about, you know, having healing services and we come in. This is about the elders of the church going and praying over an individual. And the Lord sometimes does marvelous things. Sometimes God doesn't heal. But that's all in the hands of the Lord. And we rest in that. We at this church, we put this into practice. Whenever someone asks for the elders to go, we do, we go, we pray with them. We pray over them. We anoint them with oil. Why? Because it says so. Sometimes God heals and sometimes he does not. But he calls for us to pray. Prayer is essential for every believer individually. The elders of the church should also be praying men. There's more than that. Verse 16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. I'm going to stop right there for now. He calls for us to be a praying church. Two observations just from that little sentence. The first is that we are not to be lone rangers in the Christian life. Pray for each other. He says we need one another. If you are going to live as a strong and vibrant follower of Jesus, if we are going to live as strong and vibrant followers of Jesus, We need one another. We need to be praying for one another. A second observation from that little verse is that we need to expose, to confess, sin which binds us. It says, confess your sins to one another. Notice it doesn't say, confess your sins about or against each other. The focus here in this is not about setting things right between us. It's a good thing for me to do to come and confess if I have sinned against you. To come and confess that and to try to make things right. That's a good thing to do, but that's not the focus here. What he's saying is, confess. when he says confess our sins to one another, it's about confessing our weaknesses. It's about confessing our struggles It's about saying that we need help and we need to pray for one another. It's about being transparent and dependent upon one another. See, sin thrives in the shadows where we hide it. This is saying we need to be humble enough to to say, I need help. It's standing together to fight sin in our lives together. It's praying together for victory and holding one another accountable. Over the years here, I have seen many of you do this very thing. Fighting things like alcohol addiction, drug abuse, tempers that You lose easily marriage problems, the wrong use of the tongue, sexual impurity, other things. And many of you have confessed these sins to one or two or even a dozen of your brothers or your sisters. And then you stand together and you pray for each other and you struggle with one another And as you stand together, what we have seen, and sometimes the struggle is long and hard, but we have seen victories come. We need one another. Prayer is essential for every believer, individually, as elders, and as a church. If we're going to survive and have spiritual victory in tough times, we all need to be praying. Back to the second half of verse 16. Another important thing to see. Verse 16, it says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. That's the ESV translation, which is in our pews. It's a good translation, but I just think it's needlessly complicated and vague I love most every other translation that's out there. I think is much easier to understand. I love the NIV. It says the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. That gets the two big Greek words there that describe prayer. Powerful and effective. And That's the other big thought I want to leave us with this morning. Prayer is powerful and effective. Powerful, meaning it is strong in its ability. And effective, meaning that prayer is strong in its effect, in what it accomplishes. And James continues, he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. James says, Elijah prayed powerful prayers. He prayed for no rain, and there was no rain. He prayed again, and there was rain. Why is this here? We're sitting here talking about suffering people people going through difficult time, people who are ill, and all of a sudden he's talking about praying for rain or praying for no rain. You have to go back and think through the story. You can find it back in 1 Kings 18. We won't turn there this morning. You might want to read it this afternoon. Why does Elijah pray that it won't rain? Well, you know, Is it that he's a big golfer and uh, you know, just wants a lot of sunny days to play golf? Maybe he hates to mow the grass and if it doesn't rain for three years, no grass to mow. By the way, you think about three and a half years of no rain. Would that make much difference in our world here? Yeah. Would that get everybody's attention? We talk about it when it doesn't rain here for a month. It's a big drought. It's horrible. What if it didn't rain for three and a half years? Why did Elijah pray it wouldn't rain? Elijah, you know, was a prophet in Israel. and His job was to speak God's word. And he was speaking to a bunch of people who were living in rebellion against God, who were following idols, following the the idols of Baal. They were into practicing evil of all kinds. The drought was about getting people's attention to help them realize that God was not happy with them. It did get their attention. and At the end of three and a half years, Elijah asked the evil king, who was sitting on there on the throne of the northern kingdom of Israel, He asked this evil king whose name was Ahab to gather together all of the prophets of Baal, all the idols that these people were worshiping, have them all gather for a big meeting. All of these, these prophets of the false religions, the idols these people were worshiping, have them gather on Mount Carmel and I'll go meet them there. And we'll have a showdown. Let's see who's really God. You know the story. It was, hey, you guys pray to your gods, you guys pray to Baal, you guys see if if he sends fire down to consume a sacrifice on an altar, then okay, he's God. If God sends down fire and burns up a sacrifice when I pray, let's see who the real God is. You guys all up for that? All the people have gathered, all the prophets have gathered, the nation has gathered out there. It's like Super Bowl Sunday. I mean, everybody is out there. You know the story. At the end of the day, Baal was demonstrated not to be a god at all. Nothing happened. and Then Elijah prayed. And the altar there with the sacrifice where barrels and barrels of water were poured upon it. Just to make sure you know it's good and soaked. It's not just going to spontaneously combust after three and a half years of, of drought. God sends fire from heaven and burns up the sacrifice and the stones. Everything. It's just a little hole in the ground there when it's done. And the people go, Oh. Guess we've been following the wrong gods, haven't we? Yep. The people confessed, the Lord, he is God. God got their attention. Then Elijah goes up on the, on, and prays, and God sends rain. Why did Elijah pray for the drought? To get the people's attention that they were going the wrong way. Why did he pray for the rains? So they would see the goodness and the blessing of God as he would be refreshed having confessed that, yes, the Lord is God. Why does James take us back to that story? James is demonstrating how God worked in mighty ways through the prayers, he says, of a man like you and me. He says, Elijah was just an ordinary man like you and me. And God worked through his prayers to affect a nation. And his implication is that Elijah prayed powerful prayer, and we can pray powerful and effective prayer. I've never prayed and had it stop raining for three and a half years. I've never prayed and had it rain, I don't think, because I' prayed. Because does, does God answer prayers like that for an ordinary person? Well, James says he does. Two key things I notice about this prayer. He says that this prayer is powerful and effective, but there's two keys to this kind of prayer. The first is, he says, the prayer of a righteous person. Did you see that? The prayer of a righteous person, a righteous man, is powerful and effective. A person who is righteous in their life. Ian e. Bounds, who wrote some marvelous books on prayer, one of them is called The Necessity of Prayer. He said, We pray feebly because we live feebly. We simply cannot talk to God strongly and intimately and confidently unless we are living for Him faithfully and truly. Secondly, not only are they righteous in their life, but he says... They are a righteous person, meaning they are also righteous in their motives. The righteous person isn't praying selfishly, you know, for a new beamer or the trivial types of things that we often pray for. You know, Lord, give me this, give me this, give me this. It's just our gimme list. He's praying as Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done. God, I want what you want. God, what what we want is we want to see sinners come to faith in Jesus Christ. What we want is to see this brother, this sister, turn from their sin. What we want, Father, is, you see, and, and we're seeking for what it is God wants, and we're praying for that. That's what Elijah was praying for. For the people, for the nation to turn back to him. righteous in their life, and righteous in the motive. That's the key, number one. It's the prayer of a righteous person. And key number two, he prayed fervently, it says. He prayed earnestly, sincerely, and persistently. Very often our prayers are weak because we just pray half-heartedly not fervently. Verses 19 and 20 are the last words of the book. We're going to move quickly here and finish it up. They're a fitting conclusion both to this section and also to, I think, the whole book. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. See, I think these last two verses help, help inform me exactly what he's talking about and why he took us to that example of Elijah. He's saying this is, really should be what is, is foremost on our minds and foremost on our hearts. As believers in Jesus Christ, we go back here to the, the whole book. The purpose of this book or I shouldn't say the purpose, but that what James does in this book is he exposes sin and hypocrisy that often creep into our life as believers. And he, he demonstrates for us what real faith looks like when it shows up in the real world, when it's lived out in the real world. And this book is challenging us. The purpose is to challenge us to call every one of us who name the name of Jesus to make sure that our life matches what we profess. And then he says says here, and he concludes with, then we're to be actively helping each other as believers to live out our faith in real life. And we're to be actively helping unbelievers to hear and understand and to know the greatest news ever. that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. New life now, eternal life forever. That's really the heart and soul of this book. And from what we've seen today, a most important step in helping both the wanderer, the wandering brother and sister, and the unbeliever is for you and me to be busy praying. Let's pray. May God bless you as you grow in your walk with him this week.